listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Wow, it's fantastic to be here. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Um, We're going to open the scriptures and uh, we're going to actually begin um, in a second at uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is a book uh, near the end of the scriptures in the New Testament. So we're going to begin at Ephesians chapter 4. Just before we do that, uh, just to let you know, if you're here for the first time or haven't been for a little while, we are in a series called uh, Faith for Exiles. And this is coming out of a series of research that was done really around the future of faith. Um, one great uh, just resource on this is actually the book Faith for Exiles, um, which you can pick up up the back there by Dave Kinnaman and Mart, Mark. I did that last week, didn't I? Mart, Mark Luck, Matt, Mark Matt Luck. Um, <laughs> by next week, I'm not preaching next week, but well, I messed it up. But respect to Mark. And we are looking at the fact that what the research showed us is that in many ways faith can be broken into four different categories. That the research showed that in millennial generation, 18 to 35s, that, that faith was expressing itself in four ways. We'll just get those to go up next. Thank you. The first one is that in the Australian church that we have prodigals who are people who have, in a sense, deconverted out of Christianity. And so 38% of um, that age group have deconverted out of Christianity, who at one time were Christian or were born Christian. Nomads are those who have fallen out of active engagement with a church or a faith community. That's 32%. Habitual churchgoers, which is 22% in Australia, is people who go to church. However, um, uh, in a sense, their beliefs and their practices don't align with what we would call biblical Christianity. Um, And the last one is resilient disciples, people who are reflecting the life of Jesus. And in Australia, that's 8%, which looks like a small number, but you don't need a a huge number to actually create a leverage point uh, at at this moment. So we're pressing into who resilient disciples are. And what we're going to look at today is this move that has occurred in our society around relationships. But to do that and to frame that, we're going to begin with the scriptures. So as I said, we're looking at Ephesians 4 and we're going to begin um, at verse 1. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just to pause there, what's happening here is we've been talking about this idea of what is it to be a resilient disciple. We've looked at the biblical example of the book of Daniel and Daniel and his friends who were called to actually live out what it is to be a resilient disciple in the context of the city of Babylon. They were taken from their homes, taken to Babylon, and then called to be faithful in an environment where the entire cultural pressure was against the flourishing of faith. Yet through their devotion to God, they managed to flourish in that place. 
Now, in this passage in Ephesians, Paul, who is an apostle, that is a sent one, someone who's gone out with the message of Jesus, is instructing a group of believers who are a minority, followers of Jesus, uh, Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus and Jewish people who have seen Jesus as the Messiah and Lord, how to follow Jesus in the midst of a modern Babylon in that time. And they saw this parallel between Babylon and the giant culture they were living under, which was the Roman Empire. So this is how do you be a resilient disciple in a new Babylon? And how do you do that, particularly when you look at this new community is being created? What does this look like to be a resilient disciple in terms of relationships? So we're going to jump ahead to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ, I'll just pause there, the body of Christ is a word which, if you're new to church, you may not have heard before, you can become inoculated to it if you've been to church for many times, that the, the term that, that Paul is using here is that Jesus, we're remembering this Advent, came and God came in human form. God came and walked around and had a human body. That's who Jesus was. Jesus, after his death and resurrection, ascends to again be with the Father. But they then use that concept that there is now operating in the world, a body of, of Jesus is operating in the world, but it doesn't look like the 30-something Jewish young man who died on the cross that the body of Jesus in the world, still animated by the spirit of Jesus, actually is now this new network, this connection, this relational dynamic of people who we know as the church. So it's very important use of language here that the language is that there is a new body of Jesus in the world operating and growing but it's a collection of relationships centered on Jesus. And at this point, this is new. So this is a bit of an upgrade now. This is a transformation to what we saw in the story of Daniel. Daniel was a handful of people trying to live faithfully. This is now actually God is acting. Where Daniel is praying, saying, God, what do you want? These people are praying, but now they're actually acting as the body of Jesus, incarnated, enfleshed, in the Roman Empire. Until, so this body needs to be built up. This is body hasn't come in fulfillment and perfection. It's actually being built up. It's being constructed. There's a project happening at this moment. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. There's a process, a bodybuilding process and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So this body's in process, it's growing, it's heading towards unity. Then, verse 14, we will no longer be infants, contrasting the mature body with the process at the start. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here, and there, by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. 
This is showing that this body of Christ in the world is not going to look perfect straight away. Actually, it's going to be sort of moved around. False teaching will come in. People will act out of their own agendas, emotional brokenness, people scheming to actually gain from this thing. If you're expecting the church to look perfect, Scripture has a response to you. Verse 15. Instead then, okay, so how are we to act? Speaking the truth in love. Such a key thing in relationships. Love, but also justice held together. What we saw on the cross now lived in community. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. So this body in the world, Christ is the head. But then 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Look to the left of you. Actually, look to the left of you. Look to the right of you. Now, just sit with that sense of awkwardness as you just did that. (laughs) Around you literally is God's plan to grow a body in the world. Next to you is the sinews and joints and ligaments of God's plan at this time in the 21st century here in Melbourne to have his body incarnating and acting his will in the world. So I tell you this, verse 17, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, here referring to those who don't believe in God nor Jesus. In the futility of their thinking, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because in the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to every sensuality, so indulge every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. 20. However, that is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So, What this is saying is that there is a way of acting in the world around relationships that aligns with what God is doing and his project at the moment, and there is another way of acting relationally, of trying to build community in a way which is separated from the ways of God. One of the terms that uh, Dave Kinnaman and, and Mark Matlock use in the book is digital Babylon. Now, that doesn't just mean technology or the internet. That means really, the more important word to focus on there is Babylon. Babylon, the idea of life without God, everything Paul is talking about there, a way of living that is more about what I want than actually what God wants in the world, which actually works against the creation of meaningful, God-centered relationships. And so digital Babylon, just as Rome was the upgrade, the 2.0 of ancient Babylon, we're now in the 3.0 of what this looks like in the 21st century. And one of the things that digital Babylon is doing that is now uh, unarguable when you look at the data coming from around the world is that digital Babylon is radically changing how people relate to each other. 
On the left, you have the classic image. I just picked one, an Italian family having a large family dinner. This is sort of a classic image of what we would see as flourishing human uh, lunches, or lunches life and lunch, they're linked. And this is classic, the idea we have when we think of kingdom. The, the, the biblical story continually uses the image of a large feast to which no one is excluded from. Actually, people are invited to those who bow their knee to Jesus. But on the right, we have something which is really fascinating. I read about this this week as I prepared, that traditionally, if you go into furniture stores, that in furniture stores, um, that classically, when you think of things like dining tables and furniture, furnitures actually have a, 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 a presupposition that you go into when you're building furniture. And so we have things like dining tables, uh, lounge suites, whatever. They're built on the idea that humans actually live together and have community. Now, this is a picture from Korea, South Korea, on the right. And in South Korea and Japan, the predictions, and the government's predicting this, they're now heading towards rapidly where the culture will be one person living alone, will be the norm. So this is creating a revolution in furniture design, um, and often what happens in Japan and Korea uh, first then flows into the rest of the West in terms of fashion um, and so on, um, is that they're now building. This is the, an example of the, kitchen, the dining table for one person. Now, what's interesting, and again too, please do not hear this, it's nowhere near my heart that if you're in that situation yourself, in no way is this slamming people who live alone. But we're trending towards this fascinating dynamic, which has happened in the past, but only after large-scale wars like World War I or places like uh, when Europe had the bubonic plague um, or after the Thirty Years' War and these times where all of a sudden you had huge amounts of people living alone. That only happened before when there was war. Um, or large-scale pandemics of disease or whatever, but we are now moving to that as a natural extension of our life script. This has never, ever happened before. And I spoke about in the first week um, of the introduction of this series that where we are is we've had this move in the last few generations or, or century from traditional culture, which is very much tied to relationship and family, but not just nuclear family, this was extended family to tribal kinship and so on, connected to place, which then moved into what we call individual, uh, sorry, institutional individualism, where people had more freedom, but they're part of the local football club, they were part of the local probus gathering, they may have been part of a trade union or the local library uh, committee or highly connected into their school or on the board of this, where people still had this web of various relationships, communities and neighbourliness was much of a higher factor, there was more social capital around, but then we're moving now into, and, and most of us have lived through these changes, and this has really happened in the last sort of two decades of hyper-individualism. But that is now moving into um, digital Babylon or fragmentation. The advent of the single person household puts tremendous strain on societies trying to provide for people. Uh, we are now at the point where when you look at it, societies which are pushing into this idea of 
greater fragmentation, the more higher a society pursues a worldview of radical individualism, we now know the data says that also means that self-harm, mental health, suicide, all of these things um, will be higher. I read this morning um, that, actually yesterday, that um, you can now test the water in most Western cities and get trace samples of antidepressants now almost in most Western cities. That's how much we are ingesting the stuff to deal with really this dynamic. So what are we looking at today? We are looking at one of the key findings of the few things that resilient disciples do well to push back against these effects and actually flourish in their faith is resilient disciples develop the muscles of meaningful relationships Couple, one of the first ones we looked at was resilient disciples find intimacy and life in Jesus as the primary relationship in their life. Last week we looked at resilient disciples actually build the muscles of cultural discernment, but this week we're looking at resilient disciples go in the opposite direction and build the muscles of meaningful relationship. Now, we hear that and there's very few people that if I sat down in a giant line with you all at the door, there's very few of you which I believe would actually say, no, Mark, I'm not down with that. I don't want any meaningful relationships and I don't want a sense of community and I don't want a sense of belonging. This is not something that we're actually not trying to achieve. But the way that digital Babylon is set up at the moment and the worldview and the forming of our culture is actually going in a very different direction. I just want to just place a few of these values that we're actually fighting against here, um, which is actually stopping the building of this and which is dragging us. No one wants a society where people are this disconnected, yet it's happening. So why is this so? Number one, people and increasingly emerging generations are formed to fear commitment and to place personal autonomy before relationships, community, and belonging. We have commitment phobia. Commitment phobia is a canary in the mind that something is seriously wrong. Second one, Digital Babylon offers us many weak relational ties at the expense of strong relational ties. In Digital Babylon, you can be connected to people all over the world. You can have 50,000 Instagram friends, but be desperately lonely. Now, I've actually met several well-known Instagram influencers who are actually incredibly lonely people. And it's shocking when you meet them. Because when you look at the actual online presence, it speaks of incredible good times, continually filtered reality. But then you, you meet these people and the other side is actually shocking at how different it is. That's not everyone, but it, it proves that you can build all these very weak, what sociologists call weak ties, which is like, in the past, what a weak tie was, when you'd, before this dynamic, particularly of social media, a weak tie was when you're walking your dog and you walk it every day and you see that guy who walks his dog at the same time and you've got this going on. How you going? And you know, like, you know, 7.20, you see each other and then maybe you get to know his name. 
Fred Nurk, hey, yeah, yeah, good. That's a weak tie. But that is now being expanded and boosted to seem like it actually means like something more at the moment. But deep, strong ties are who's going to actually turn up when you're sick? Who would go above and beyond when you're in absolute need? And so human flourishing is actually based more on the amount of strong relational ties you have than weak ties. I, a number of years ago, was at an urban ministry conference in Sydney, and there was a major from the Salvation Army, and she explained that one of the emerging ministries of the Salvation Army in inner city Sydney is actually people who have many friends, lots of social media friends, and when they die through an overdose or whatever reason, um, there's virtually no one to pull their funeral together because they don't have strong relational ties. Digital Babylon is a high-performance culture which teaches us to put material things, experiences, and achievements before relationships and community. We are formed to put things and experiences and achievements before relationships and community. This is in the air around us. This is advertisements. This is even schooling and so on. Really interesting, and I say this as someone who played competitive sport from I think I was seven till 38, the whole time, soccer and basketball. I was in a team of some description from that large part of my life. It's really interesting the research, as people dig into this stuff, is one of the things that's actually creating um, the drift away from faith, that 70% of young people, is actually the prioritization of elite sports for children over being part of a faith community. And there's a great tweet I saw about this the other day, someone who's digging into this and said, the biggest threat to, uh, the, the, it was talking about the American church, but the data says Canada, Australia is the same, the biggest threat to the American church is not secularization, but little league sports. So fascinating. And that's one of the things that sometimes kids want to go into that space, but you've got to have a, a really good backup plan and alternative then to how that, those kids are actually going to be um, invested in sport because only a very, very tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of uh, people in Australia will ever become elite sports people at the highest level, yet the stats are that people are going to walk away from their faith without significant change. Digital Babylon erodes social capital, the fuel of healthy communities. Now, in institutional um, um, individualism, it was okay in some ways because people still volunteered. They got involved in local charities. They did things in the community. We still built up the community. Um, I often think about like parks where people, there's a park at the end of my street and they literally have once a month, uh, people come together and pick up rubbish there and make that park beautiful. But when I look at such activities, you think of things like Rotary and all these different areas, which builds what Robert Putnam called social capital. Social capital is the knife stuff that builds relationships and makes a nicer community and builds connection, which churches do a heck of a lot of. Um, but the problem is that when you look at those ones in the community, is they're, they're aging. They're aging rapidly. And as the baby boomers, who are often derided, but the baby boomers actually have provided so much social capital that... As that starts to drop out, we're going to live in very different communities. And visiting different cities around the world, which just have these high turnover communities, you can actually see social capital erodes very quickly. 
Digital Babylon and these patterns of belonging actually create what the Barna term, nomads. So what's, what, what Digital Babylon is doing is it's actually creating a pattern of being which even though we don't want to, means that we may still believe, but we don't belong. But eventually the trajectory is for those who believe but don't belong will eventually not believe. And lastly, digital Babylon, and this is what Sarah was, was hinting at before, not hinting, explaining that digital Babylon's failing life script creates in us a lack of personal formation and poor emotional health, which undermines the building of meaningful relationships and community. So what this means is that we don't know how to build community. This art has been, particularly in, as we go down in the generations, it's been lost. And people, because this new radical individualist script is actually making us emotionally less healthy, therefore it's harder to be in community. Now, I began my journey into ministry, and um, I did that by being an intern with the Salvation Army uh, in the youth department of Camwell Salvation Army. And I was under a guy uh, called Marshall, who was my youth pastor. And so one day, we, he said, right, well, you're going to learn how to do small groups. And, um, and I'm like, okay. And we're going to work out how to do our system of Bible studies. This is how we did our system of Bible studies. We said, oh, we're going to do it on Tuesday afternoon. So we basically got out and we got a whiteboard and we worked out how many young adults were in our youth group. We had a lot. Um, and we then said, right, we need this many leaders. So we worked out like, I don't know, it was 10, 12, whatever leaders. We worked them out. We wrote their names on the board. And then we just chucked a few names under it. And we rang them and said, can you start a Bible study or a small group? And like, yeah, no worries. They did it, say, on Tuesday or Thursday night every week. And then we checked in with them maybe 18 months later. And the response was like, yeah, it's going pretty good. Yeah. People are growing. Great. We are so far from that dynamic now. Okay, just ask Daniel, who is in charge of our discipleship communities. And this is not just red. This is everywhere. This is the new story of how this works. Okay, so same thing. You get the boards. However you do it. Some people have, like, you know, cooler online tools. Doesn't matter about the cooler online tool. Uh, here's Fred Nurk, who just does so much in our church. Can just give it up for Fred Nurk. He's doing so much. Every week I talk about him. Fred Nurk in our church, okay, he, he wants to, he's a fairly mature Christian um, guy. Let's put him in charge of a group. He's the, literally 12 to 24 people in his group. Great, solved. All these people who've signed up, hey, I want Christian community. I want to connect into the church. Yeah, I want to grow. Need a Christian community. Fred Nurk's your man. Thursday nights at his house. Um, here we go. Six months later, Fred Nurk gives you a call. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm exhausted. Why are you exhausted? I know I've got 24 or 12 or 17 people on the list, but man, we, we're getting three people every week. That's the most we get. And some weeks, no one turns up. And I've got all these people on the list. Um, and you know what? I'm just exhausted because there's this going on with this person and this person and those people talk over the other people and that's happening and this person's falling apart and I, I just can't do this anymore. This is happening everywhere. People literally now in churches are asking the question, is small groups and connect groups, discipleship groups, whatever the heck you want to call them, over and a huge part of it is because of this. So, 
we find ourselves at a really interesting point. Discipleship groups, small groups, were such a key part of Christianity during the institutional, individualist stage because people learnt outside of the church how to do community. If you'd volunteer for the local library, you'd learn how to be on a committee, how to wait for someone's term, how to actually turn up every time. We realised that actually you've got to actually turn up to build something. So we're presented with an incredible challenge. So, there's your answer right there. (laughs) This is a picture done by the famous English engraver Hogarth of 18th century London. Famous picture called Gin Lane. And what this picture represented was a move amongst culture in Britain to stop drinking beer and start drinking gin. Gin was a highly alcoholic spirit, and it was literally like the opioids epidemic of the 18th century. And in this picture, it's just showing absolute social breakdown. Now, what was happening at this time is that people had begun to move to the cities because the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, technology was disrupting everything. People like, how do people relate anymore? Since the medieval period, people had lived in same spaces where they'd be part of literally, the church's answer was you lived in a parish. The church actually organized how people were arranged and involved and lived in these various communities. Now, it wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it actually had some sense of stability. But in the 18th century, as advancements happened in agriculture and all across culture, all of a sudden people were on the move and people's relationships absolutely broke down. People did not know how to relate to each other. And so they began to medicate, people were self-harming, they began to medicate, they actually began to take gin and society was torn apart. One of the reasons we're sitting here in Melbourne, Australia is one of the answers was to this problem was to send a bunch of these people down to Australia because they just did not know what to do with this absolute social crisis. Into this space, a number of people, but one particularly was John Wesley, the English evangelist and revivalist came and he preached the good news. Now he had a friend called George Whitfield and George Whitfield was a far better preacher than Wesley. Whitfield, Benjamin Franklin said when he heard him in America, could project his voice without a microphone so 20,000 people could hear. Literally he would start speaking and people would start weeping. He could just lead so many people to Jesus. And what happened was, Whitfield was just bringing the people in, but what Wesley did was realized that there was a need. There was a huge social problem. And so, Wesley created a new way of belonging for people at a moment when the social fabric was absolutely breaking down. This was the moment that is known as the great revivals in England, which also was happening in America, and Wesley's followers went to America, and so much of the church in those two countries, and even here, literally in Box Hill South, there's a little Wesleyan chapel of guys who got on horses and came from central Melbourne out here, and the church was actually spread here, of something that happened at this moment when Wesley got people into new forms of community that discipled and formed them. D. Michael, Michael Henderson says this of Wesley, Wesley was able to recapture the spirit of kononoia. This is a Greek word, meaning that sense of community and Christian fellowship of belonging, the supportive fellowship of primitive or early Christianity. 
Now listen to this quote. John Wesley brought about a national spiritual renewal in 18th century England. His techniques for nurturing and training Christian disciples not only brought personal transformation to tens of thousands of working class believers, but listen to this, a moral reformation of the nation as well. Sociologists and historians believe that the reason that France had a bloody revolution and was torn apart by war, and England wasn't because of what John Wesley did here. And, and Whitfield said at the end of his life, basically, I preach to all of these people, but my disciples fall like strings of sand through my hands while they stay with Wesley. And so we're at another moment, I believe, at the end of institutional individualism as we move into this hyper-radical post-institutional individualism, as we move into digital Babylon. At this moment, like, to be honest, I don't know how to put you into groups. We're trying. Daniel and I are praying, and we've got some plans, but we're at a moment where instead of being afraid of this, we're actually going to see this as an opportunity because God is making us look at this, and what if this time God didn't just want to do a renewal where we feel the Holy Spirit, but he actually wanted to rebuild that original vision of the church to actually be his body in the world. And let's actually look at this. I mean, the way we're heading, it's not making us any happier. We're becoming more disconnected and lonely and frustrated. We need a revolution of how we relate to each other. We need a renewal in this place. So, to return to the scripture that we read, John Wesley went back to the New Testament. He went back to the early church. How did Paul, how did James, how did Peter, how did these people inspired by the risen Jesus, animated by the Holy Spirit, how did they do this? So let's return to this scripture, this one in particular from Ephesians 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. In other words, this self that is you before Jesus redeemed you which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what we have here is some of our attempts to actually live out community, be it at church, be it in marriage, be it with people in your street, with your workmates, with your friends, just to try and find friends so often we're going to fall into the trap of trying to do that from our old self. And what Paul is saying here, if you have any chance of actually living as the body of Christ, of doing human relationships and community and and, and having meaning and belonging in connection with other people, you have to do this from the new self. On the cross, Jesus died and your old self died. Don't go back to living in its ways. You now need to live out of the old, out of the new self. Robert Banks in his book, Paul's Idea of Community, says this of Jesus. Through his obedience, note this word, obedience, the trend initiated by the first member of the human race, that's Adam, who went his own way, who chose his will over God's. And then the whole thing began to break apart as Adam and Eve became separate from God and no longer in close, intimate relationship with him. 
that actually men and women, the en en enmity which began between them happens at that point. Cain and Abel, a murder. Babel, human humanity giving these different languages. The relational breakdown that actually doesn't, it's not, it's not digital Babylon. Digital Babylon is just a boosted version of the story that's been happening throughout humanity's history. That you have to put that away. But now we have someone who has reversed this. Since he did not Back to the quote. I'll go from the top. <laughs> Through his obedience, the trend initiated by the first member of the human race, Adam, has now been reversed. Since he did, not, he did this not for his own sake, but for the sake of all people as their representative, he is the foundation of a new community. You are invited to now do community and human relationships wherever you are, through your new self, through the new Adam. Paul in other translations calls the new man. And so all of this stuff, we have choices to do all of this stuff, church, friends, family, workplace, society, marriage, singleness, community, whatever, from an old self-thinking, or we can actually step into the empowerment of the Spirit of Jesus and actually do it from the new self. So how do we do this? Number one, we have to make a decision to actually look and take an inventory of how we're operating in the world of relationships and choose to now do this from the new self. Some people in this room need to go back and actually look at their cast of friends and make a decision that you need to now relate to these people from a new self perspective. There are some people married to each other in this room who have an opportunity on the drive home to actually say, hang on, are we doing this out of old self or new self? There is an opportunity before us as a church at Red that's being perfected and grown to actually operate and be part of Red from a new self. As the leader, I have to continually discipline myself to lead Red from my new self, not the old self. Because if I go into old self, Red will head into very bad territory. So we have to make a decision, your workplace, wherever it is, to build new human relationships from the new self. Now this is so key to 21st century reality. Notice it was through obedience that Jesus, through him saying, not my will, but yours. Before the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours. Digital Babylon has sold you a fast one that you can have endless autonomy, endless freedom, and just giving him more and more freedom, more and more freedom, more and more freedom to do what you want, yet to have meaningful relationships and to build biblical community, you have to reduce your personal freedom. I'm not saying give it all away. There's elements of personal freedom which is great. There's a beautiful moment in George Orwell's 1984 where Winston Smith, living under a society which tries to control and destroys individuality, starts a journal and sits with the beauty of his inner voice and the fact that he doesn't have to agree with what everyone around him is thinking and a society which is trying to crush him. That freedom is good, but we're way down the opposite extreme here. We're at the opposite extreme where we just want to push into more personal freedom. So what that means is then when we do enter into things where we need to actually reduce our freedom, someone gets so much of pre-marriage counseling today is helping people realize that to be in a marriage, you're actually gonna to have to reduce your personal freedom. In a culture which said, no, you'll meet someone and they're just gonna be so cosmically amazing 
they're just going to expand your personal freedom. They're just going to be like an automaton, that creepy Saudi Sophia robot who's just going to be like, anything you want. I can expand your personal freedom. No, you actually have to submit your personal freedom. Pre-marriage counselling is Vegemite or Promite. You're going to have to talk about this and reduce your personal freedom. There's this sense too where having a child, having a child which is the most incredible blessing and gift, go forth and multiply. Teach your children the precepts and statutes of the Lord. So biblical. You can't, a child is going to significantly reduce your personal freedom, the experiences that you think you're going to have, the actual ability to actually push your own agenda. Children are God's wonderful messenger that you are not the center of the universe. <laughs> they are not a prop then. They're not a mini Sophia the creepy robot. But sadly, people try and make that. So to actually have personal freedom and to do church, to do church, we have to reduce our personal freedom. I'm not saying heaps. This is actually the language of just servants. Paul, and you see this continually in the New Testament, he's trying to help these churches grow, is how do you be a servant? It's all well and good, Asked at Remembrance Day on the 11th, the 11th, say, you know, these people gave everything and admire that, to admire the people who on, 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 on London Bridge yesterday jumped in and stopped a terrorist attack, attack being much worse, to actually have this huge cultural admiration for people who go in the opposite spirit to their own will and even safety, and yet think we can build stuff in this world and not have that spirit. But Jesus says there's a different way. And the brilliant thing is, what we don't realize is, we're reducing personal freedom, but we're actually getting freedom in Christ, and it's so much better. To be part of a community here, all different ages, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different social economic statuses, but here together, this is an absolute gift and joy. This is a freedom to be here and be free in Christ and to worship and praise together. This is so counter-cultural. God uses relationships and community to grow us. When it gets difficult, that doesn't mean it's bad. And I just want to say this particularly because I think this is an emerging thing in digital Babylon. If it's hard or difficult, it's bad. No, no, no. Sometimes hard and difficult is utterly brilliant because it's actually teaching you something. Push into hard and difficult. The hard and difficult things that I have experienced in the world of human relationships actually has made me a far better person made me more Christ-like. God uses relationships and community to grow us, moving us from me to more than me. Jean Vanier, who I think is just one of the most eloquent writers in the Christian world, who passed away recently, actually said this. He ran a community of uh, disabled people, and he says this. A community is only a community when the majority of its members is making the transition from the community for myself to myself for the community. Let me just put this out here. Some of us will be on a journey of coming to Red Church because I want some stuff for me, and my prayer is that the journey of being part of Red Church takes you from Red Church for me to actually me for Red Church, me for the, the, the kingdom of God, me for Christ's body in the world. 
When each person's heart is opening to all the others without any exception, this is the movement from egoism to love, from death to resurrection, is the Easter, the Passover of the Lord. It's also passing from a land of slavery because endless personal freedom ultimately is slavery to a promised land, the land of interior freedom, where you can truly be free because you're part of a community that together is pursuing Christ and there's a place where you can truly be free and safe. Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, both sociologists, uh, came to the conclusion that primarily you are going to, despite your supposed independent thought, you are going to become effectively what the handful of people around you who you're most closest to are. What they discovered, it's so fascinating. If the five people who you are closest to put on five kilograms, you're going to put on five kilograms. That's the bad news. The good news is, if the people around you lose five kilograms, you're going to lose five kilograms. That we are so profoundly influenced by the people around us. And the gift of discipleship is, yes, we need to be around the poor and the broken and the hurt and the needing, being Jesus' light and feet in the world. But we also need to realize that we need to be in a grouping of people who are championing us on. Scripture says, iron sharpens iron. We need to be around people who are, listen to this, not exactly like us. The default pseudo-community of digital Babylon is the Diet Coke ad, where you're just going to find yourself surrounded by a bunch of really cool people who all have the same interests, hobbies, life stage as you. Actually, this is one of the reasons that we're so pushing into triads and these forms. We're wondering if what God's doing with them in the next season is we need to be championed on. This is what the early church did. This is what Judaism did. You need to be surrounded by people who are spurring you on to be more Christ-like. The people you chose, proactively choosing the people who are going to speak most into your life, not just automaton peers who you are like a mirror bouncing the same opinion off each other, but actually people are going to champion you on to God. And the last one. Advent, Adventus in the Latin. As Brittany said before, is the coming. In the Hebrew, Maranatha means, Lord Jesus, come. This is what we're celebrating. Red has been pushing into the fact that the moments of renewal, at moments throughout the whole story, really, of the Bible, is the story of God's people living in his presence, who then chose to go their own way. The breaking of that relationship between humans and God. And then God's endless, relentless pursuit of us. What Francis Thomas Thompson called the hound of heaven pursuing us down every alleyway. God's presence is chasing you down, regardless of your level of faith. God's presence is what this is all about. God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. We will sing these Christmas carols and hymns, but what we're remembering isn't just the fact that Jesus came in a manger and there's tinsels and gifts and stuff in the shops. We're actually remembering that Jesus comes and his presence and body came amongst us and he's still here. The incarnation is what we are celebrating, the putting of flesh on God's love for us. And what this means is, 
a people who gather around the presence of God, who are centered on the incarnation of Christ, who put hands and, and, and skin and bones, is we are now that in the world. We're centered around God's presence, but we're living in a time which is increasingly disembodied, where church is facing a crisis that people are turning up less and less and less. Please hear me. Your presence, your physical presence amongst the people of God is an utter gift. Jesus said that when someone gives a glass of water in my name, that's me. You sitting here, you smiling, you sitting next to someone, not even saying anything, but worshipping. You are Jesus incarnating into that moment, Jesus' hands and feet. When we're not present, we're robbing people of God's presence. I spoke to someone this, this, this week on a Skype call who's a leader of an international movement, two to 3,000 churches, plants around the world, many in places like Iraq, Syria, uh, China, Vietnam, these places, many facing persecution, Turkey, and to hear the stories of the lengths that people at this moment are having to go to, to just sit amongst a group of believers at any moment, fearing secret police, are gonna come through doors. I mean, literally like text messages, finding weird things, phone calls, drop-offs. I mean, it's like a spy story just to get into a church and be around other believers. It is incredible and inspiring. Let's not be the opposite of that. God is doing something in the world at the moment. Their world is shaking. There are mass protests across the world. We need the Prince of Priests to come at this time, and you're part of that story. And what God is doing at Red is part of that story. So we face a moment like John Wesley faced, but we're going to actually go in the opposite spirit around relationships. Does Red have all the answers? No. We can't provide the perfect program for you that gives you the perfect connection point into red and gives you an instant community. But you know what Jesus asked, what John Wesley realized at that moment is, this is a project that we're actually gonna work on together and we need to work on this as a team. So let's step into living alternate, different, meaningful relationships at this time. Let's be God's presence amongst other people. Let's stand. Jesus, at this time, so much pressure. We want community, we want to belong, we want to be loved. Yet, our society forms us in ways which just run in the opposite direction to that. And so Jesus, we just again ask for you to come at this time. Holy Spirit, be amongst us. Father, we need to live and do relationships in this relational world in which we live as individuals, as your church and workplaces, streets, even just in a global society that we're in. Father, we need to be your body in the world. Help us to live relationships out of the new man. And Father, that language may be completely new. We may not even know what the first step is to take, but we ask that your Holy Spirit comes now and enlivens and quickens us, Father. Help us to show where we've grabbed onto personal freedom and autonomy as a God. Father, instead, we want to say, not our will, but yours. Thank you, Father, you're building a new thing in the world, Jesus. And may you use us wherever we are.
to be your agents, your feet, your hands, your ligaments, your sinews in this world. Move us to the maturity, Father, that we need in you.